Thank you, Charlene. That passage is a, is a perfect companion passage to what we're going to be looking at this morning. And it just reiterates what um, the, the writer of Hebrews also says and uh, the freedom we have in, in Christ. Before we get there, let's, let's pray together this morning. Father, we are uh, humbled that, um, that we are reflecting your glory. And even though we, uh, we do it um, sometimes foolishly and, and certainly flawed, but um, we have that privilege. And Father, I'm asking that you, you uh, change us and transform us to do that, that you make us excited about doing that, that you give us um, enthusiasm to reflect your glory to others, that it's not um, that we just are able to show just how good you are and that this is uh, not pretend, but you truly are our Savior and you truly do love us. So, Father, as we look into your word this morning and we look at this complicated book uh, that's so removed from us in so many different ways, I ask that your spirit teach us today and show us what is clear and what is obvious and what is good. And in Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. So we are continuing in Hebrews chapter 10. Um, and we get to the point where he comes to the passage of, okay, uh, now what? After all this. Uh, Yogi Berra, one of his famous sayings is, the future ain't what it used to be. And if there's ever a time for that is more true than today, I don't know when that would be. Uh, I don't think there's ever been as much a disruption in the communal life of the church in the West than the COVID pandemic this last year. Uh, I say in the West because the East has had a lot more disruption and a lot more um, uh, disruption in their communal life as well as their individual life in, in the last hundred years uh, under communism. And so they have suffered a lot more. But for those, those of us in the West, I don't think there is a bigger disruption. There has not been a bigger disruption in the last hundred years for the church, for the communal life of the church especially, than the COVID pandemic. And uh, it's, we, we get through it. And there's the opinions about it, about the consequences of this, are, are change, are, are just run the spectrum. Some people say this is so the, the seeds of destruction for the church in America. And other people are saying, no, those seeds are the seeds of revival. And frankly, we just don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what the future is going to look like. But it ain't what it used to be. Uh, I thought there would be, uh, when all this happened, and I didn't know when, but I really thought there would be a Sunday where we would come roaring back as a church, and, uh, but now I, feel, I, I get the idea that it's more of a clawing back to, for, for the church as a general, as we claw our way back to some sort of normalcy, because we've, just, we've, we've uh, had new patterns formed, uh, new patterns formed in our church, in our family, in our homes, in our work. Uh, more people are working at home. My, I don't think my son-in-law, he says that uh, when all this is, it was this, when they come out of it over in England, he will probably still be working at home three days a week. And so we've got all these new patterns of uh, staying home and watching, you know, going through the catalog of Netflix and 
uh, getting used to watching church on, in pajamas or whatever, and, or whenever we feel like it. And so you've got all these new patterns that have happened. But uh, if there is a silver lining, it's that we have a blank slate. And I believe, my personal philosophy is you never waste a blank slate. If you've got a blank slate, take advantage of it. And so I think that's probably what we need to do. And we, this is a good time to look at it as what is essential and what is non-essential. What is it we cannot give up and what is it something that's just superfluous and we need to let go? What are some new traditions that we need to, to form and what are some old traditions that we need to maintain? Uh, what is really truly important? Well, Hebrews 10, chapter 10, beginning in verse 19, that's exactly what he's getting at. And I can't think of a better time for us to arrive at this passage than today. This is a perfect time of what he wants to do because he is, is telling us what is essential in these, la in these seven verses. Uh, one, of the, one of the ways to approach Scripture that I think is way, way, way underrated, and I think is maybe perhaps one of the primary purposes of Scripture, is to um, create this identity of a people. I mean, I'm talking about from Genesis on, whether it's genealogies or poems or stories, all these things tell, tell us who we are and what kind of people we are. And that's what I think the book of Hebrews is getting at right now in verse 19, is he's telling us who we are, uh, who, uh, our identity. He's given us an identity of, um, of what the people of God are like. And uh, he is creating this people. Uh, when, the, when one of the basic um, uh, Bible study methods that you, you kind of approach the scriptures with is when you see the word therefore, like there in our, our first passage, our first word, you always ask yourself what it's there for. And uh, this somebody, somebody told me, I think it was a youth pastor, somebody told me that years and years ago, and that's probably been as useful tool that I learned anytime, even in seminary. <laughs> that if you see therefore, you always ask what it's there for. And what I think this passage is doing is when he says therefore, it refers to something that comes before it. And it could be just the idea, the verse that comes before it, even the word becomes before it. Sometimes it's bigger than that. And that's what I think is happening here in Hebrews uh, chapter 10, verse 19, that he's talking about the whole thing, that he's bringing back for the whole thing that he's been doing. Uh, every, uh, every passage that he has picked, every way he's arranged his persuasive arguments, every idea, every picture that he has drawn, uh, every, um, every exhortation is all about explaining this thing about Jesus Christ. That he starts off saying this, this man, Jesus Christ, the truly human one, who is greater than the angels, is also the great priest after the order of Melchizedek, who is not only the priest, but is also the sacrifice, who has made it way for us to make our way to God, and this, un, like I said last week, this unnatural gift of forgiveness that he has given us, it's all, all about Jesus in this book. And now he's coming to, therefore, this is what this all means. And he's going to give us the essentials of who we are. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have the boldness to enter the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus by a fresh and living way which he has inaugurated for us through the curtain, that is, through his body. And since we have a great high priest who has authority over the house of God, let us draw near with true hearts in fullness of faith, with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and a body washed clean by pure water. 
Let us hold firm to the confession of hope without wavering, because the one who made the promise is faithful. And let us consider how we can generate in one another love and good works, not neglecting our own meetings, as some are, in the, are habitually doing, but encouraging one another, much more so as you see the day approaching. Therefore, this is all about, all leading up to this. This is who we are. And he, and he begins by laying this groundwork of the situation, of, of describing our position. And then he goes on with three, three dimensions of three things, three invitations, three miracles, we can say, of what he expects from us. And he's telling us who we are, who is this, these people who are called Jesus followers, and what do they look like, and what do they do? And, and these people who have chosen to enter into this, this, uh, this deep and rich and real and, yes, flawed fellowship of people who follow Jesus Christ. Who are we, and what do we look like? And he lays this groundwork at the very beginning about just this, this you know, the situation of who it is, of how we have this boldness to enter in to the Holy of Holies. This isn't something we muster up ourselves. It's not like we got to get up the courage to go do that. It's just done for us that we are able to have access through the Holy of Holies. And unfortunately, we don't get the revolutionary concept this is. We don't understand in the 21st century in Western United States the power that he is, he is explaining here. For the people he's talking to, they have been raised generation after generation after generation, hundreds and hundreds of years to understand the exclusion and the separation between them and God. There has always been a curtain between them and, and the Holy of Holies. And only one person could go in to do that, to, to make a sacrifice into the Holy Holies, one person, one time a year, and that's it. And now he's saying we all have access to that. For the Jew listening to this passage being read, they are just unbelievable. This is just, this is revolutionary. They cannot grasp it. And he says, there are several ways of doing it. We are a forgiven people through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I, put the, I had this picture up last, last week, and we were running short of time, so I skipped over, I did it, but I thought it was so, it's so impressive to me, it's so beautiful to me. This is a painting by a, painting, a painter named uh, uh, Paolo Veronese, and it was painted in the 16th century, and it's called The Last Supper. And uh, when he painted it and displayed it, he got approached by the Inquisition that this was sacrilegious, this was irreverent, this was... This was demeaning the Last Supper. Why? Well, you see Jesus there in the center, and all around it you see just what's going on around him. You, and if you look real closely, you see people with a bloody nose. You see uh, uh, um, Muslims from, from Africa and the Middle East. You see all kinds of people drinking and, and partying and, and all this, and they, it, was just, it was just blowing their mind. It was sacrilegious. They finally let it be displayed if he would change the name. So it was no longer called the Last Supper. I think it's called the, the Feast at the Pharisee's House or something like that. And ironically, it's these inquisitioners who were acting as the Pharisees at the time. <laughs> the painter was saying that these are the people Jesus hung around with. Yeah. This is the people that he hung out with. Amen. And that's what he's trying to get at. 
And the book of Hebrews is saying that, that through this sacrifice, he gives us some, some uh, ways of how he does this. <clears throat> that, uh, well, let's see, we're going to go back here for a minute. That through the blood and the body of Jesus Christ, the blood that was spilled and the body that was broken. And notice the physicality here. The emphasis on the physical body, the physical blood, the physical body that was broken, the physical blood that was poured out, that's what caused the sacrifice. That's what causes our forgiveness. That's what allows us to approach. He says the body has been, he uses the word curtain here, the curtain has been ripped, which he says is the body. In other words, his body was torn apart and the curtain was torn apart. That word has only appeared six times in the New Testament, three times in the Gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when the crucifixion and the curtain was split in two, very symbolically. And then three times here in the book of Hebrews. This is an important idea for him. That as the body of Christ was split in two, so was the curtain. And it's through the blood of the sacrifice that we can do that. That we can have that. It's all, all Jesus. It's all about Jesus. This, this beginning clause, this beginning little phrase before we get into the, to the invitations is all about Jesus. That there's nothing that we add. There's nothing we have to muster up to get this courage. There are two things that have changed the soul of human beings in the history. One was the fall of man, and the other was the grace of God. Those two things have changed the soul of human beings. There is no power stronger than grace. Satan doesn't have any of it. God is defined by it. Amen. The grace of God. This is all about Jesus. There's nothing we add to this. There's, we have boldness, we have confidence, but it's not the same thing as pride and arrogance because we don't have anything to do with it. God is defined of it. Nothing is stronger and this is the image that he has given us to redeem us, to restore us. And this is how he revealed himself to us. No one else. Normal, everyday people, they have Messiah complexes. And these days, it almost feels like we encourage that. But there is no place for some Messiah complex in the church. Amen. No preacher, no pastor, I mean, if you're dependent on a pastor to sell, if you're dependent on me to save you, you will be disappointed immediately. No preacher, no politician, no author. And it's easy for me to be a fanboy of a couple of authors I really like, but I have to realize they are not the Messiah. They are not the truth. It is all, all Jesus. We must keep the gospel in the center of what we're doing here. If we don't, then we're just like the world with a Jesus sticker stuck on our door. Amen. That has to be the center of it. I have a, a lot of books in my library, personal library, on the crucifixion, on the death of Christ. This is probably my favorite by Fleming Rutledge. And uh, she just done an amazing job. I think, it was, yeah, it was Christianity Today's Book of the Year in 2017. Just really fascinating book. And it's got great ideas in it. But Jesus didn't die to give us a book full of ideas. It's, she does a masterful job of explaining it, wonderful ideas, but that's not why he died. 
And evidently, it's not that important to the book of Hebrews either because he didn't go in to explain exactly how the crucifixion works. He just says it does. The crucifixion happened to rescue us from death and evil. End of story. This is a great job of explaining it, trying to explain it, but the bottom line is this happened to rescue us from death and evil. And the book of Hebrews tells us he accomplished it. He goes on and he gives us three invitations. And this, there's so much in these seven verses that I, I may have to finish early and just continue it on next week. I mean, each one of these can be a sermon. You know, and there probably is, and it's too many, it's too much stuff to go on. But there's basically three invitations here. They're not commands. They're not in the imperative. They are let us verbs. Let us do these three things. And these three things are what define us. These three things is what identify us. And the first one is the vertical dimension to draw near. There is a vertical dimension, there is a personal dimension, and then there's a horizontal dimension. And the vertical dimension is let us draw near. I almost hate to use the, the vertical idea, the vertical picture, because one of my big pet peeves is to think that God's up there and upstairs somewhere. But I really don't know how else to describe it, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cave in here and use the, use the image of vertical. But let us draw near, which is to worship, basically. He is calling us to worship with a heart committed to truth. He tells us how to do it. We're coming with a heart committed to truth. And that truth is in the form of a person. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the truth. This is not something we have to psych ourselves up to, but this is something that just, we just acknowledge that he is the truth. This is the heart that we approach with. The author here loves Jeremiah 31. And I think this is what he has in mind here. That in this new covenant... In this new covenant, God will put the laws into our brains and write them on our hearts. And I think that's what he's got in mind here. And if we want to look at the law, we go to Jesus. He is the truth. We, will, we, with, we approach him with a heart committed to truth. We approach him with an assurance of faith. Literally, it says the fullness of faith. We approach him with trust. And I believe that comes with love. I believe the more we fall in love with Jesus, the more we trust him. That's with faith. That we look hard at the person of Christ and we fall in love. And this faith is, a, is this mystery interplay between the grace of God and our, and our, mental, our mental capabilities. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 2.20, he says, My real life is the faith I have in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself for, for me. That's where the faith is comes from. And I, I run into a lot of people who say, well, I just don't feel the faith. I don't feel like the trust. And, and I don't, it's just I have so many doubts. And then under the cover of being authentic, they say, I just can't come to church anymore. I just can't be a part of Christianity because I, I just don't, I have these doubts. Well, guess what? It comes with the territory. Amen. We don't, we may seek this certainty but I would argue certainty is the opposite of faith. I would argue certainty requires no faith at all. It's faith is trusting. And if you have doubts, get over it. We all have doubts. And my anchorage, when I have doubts, when I see the darkness start to, start to come in, 
and we sang about it this morning. My, my anchorage is that beautiful light that I turn to that will dispel the darkness. And that beautiful light, to, for me, is the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I go back there, and I go back there, and I say, yes, Jesus is the light. He is the life. He is the way. He is the truth. And I live with my doubts. Doesn't mean our faith is irrational. But we live with our doubts. That's where I go. I go back to the gospel. And I see it as a beautiful light that dispels the darkness. Let us draw near with heart sprinkled clean. And he uses this idea, the picture of the tabernacle. We looked at that last week where they sprinkle all the utensils. Well, this is the blood of Jesus sprinkling all the utensils, making it ready for us to appear. And he says we are sprinkled clean from, a, uh, from evil consciousness, from guilt and shame. And we all carry these things with us. We all carry stuff with us. We think things we did things we wish we had done, things we said, things we wish we had said, this feeling that everybody's going to discover that I'm a fraud. We all carry these things, these regrets. We all carry these things with us. But because of the blood of Jesus, we can come with a clean conscience. And humanly speaking, you know, they come back. But that's when I go back to the Gospels and I say, okay, you are truth. This is a lie. We go back with hearts sprinkled and bodies washed. I don't want to get real technical here. There's a lot of confusion of what this phrase means. Is he talking about baptism? What is he talking about here? He's probably talking about the ceremonial washings uh, that the priests would do after the sacrifice. They'd go through some ceremonial washings. I also think, happen to think that he also is referring to baptism here. But what he's saying here is that this is, this is our... This is our invitation. This is our, uh, our initiation into the renewed people. And what I think he's getting at here is that this salvation is holistic. This is everything. This is consciousness. This is body. This is everything. This is what we are longing for. This is what we are longing for in our deepest, deepest hearts. And throughout the pandemic, it has been so easy to just amuse ourselves to death of watching TV or doing whatever, anything that we can to distract us, it's just, just to try to, to inoculate ourselves. But this is what we're longing for. What we're longing for is to be liked, to be accepted, and to be loved. And that is what I think the author is getting at here. This is a holistic thing. This isn't just trying to ease my guilty conscience. This is a holistic longing of everything that we need. There are two golden rules of worship. I know I'm spending a lot of time on this one. One is you become like what you worship. Whatever it is you're worshiping, that's what you're going to become like. That's why idolatry is so dangerous. Amen. That you get distracted to worship anything else, you're going to become like that. If it's money, you're going to become like that. It will enslave you. If it's power, you will become like that. You become like what you worship. And the second rule of worship is worship of the true God makes you more truly human. You become more a true human being. And that's the price of idolatry. 
that you become less of what you were when you worship an idol. You worship the true God, you become truly human. The second personal dimension is maintain our grip on our confession of hope. And at first, when I was looking at this this week, you know, this is one of those passages that I've lived with my whole life and I think I know what it means and know what it says. And then I took a little closer look at it and it says we don't maintain our grip on hope, we maintain our grip on the confession of hope. Why the confession? Because I think it's based on truth. That once we know our truth, and I think this is the educational part of a church, that once we know the truth of Jesus and we know more and more about the truth of Jesus, we hold on to that and it becomes more and more solid, Amen. like a rock. And with that comes the hope, the truth about Jesus. One of the questions that I get asked most common, and it won't always be worded exactly like this, but one of the questions I get asked most, most common is, will God turn out to be as good as Jesus? And we can say with this, yes. He will turn out to be every bit as good as Jesus. He is not some cosmic chess player trying to play games with you. He is not some sergeant who is trying to take the law from the outside and make you obey it. He is every bit as good as Jesus. And he goes on to say, because the one who makes the promise is faithful. Literally, it says the promise maker or the one making the promises is faithful. Paul says this, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful. He will do this. He is faithful. If there's anything we've learned this year, it's that we are not in control. Amen. And that God is in charge. And he will accomplish what he wants to accomplish. We are not in, we are not in charge. We have been confronted this year with an uneasiness about death. We have been confronted this year with um, uh, emotional, uh, mental health. We've been confronted this year with loneliness. We've been confronted this year with domestic abuse, alcohol and drug abuse. I talked to one police officer who was telling me that, that when all this started, the domestic abuse report skyrocketed. We have been confronted with all this. We've been confronted with inequalities and racial tensions and uh, political polarization, we've been confronted with all this. And so our illusion of control has been shattered. And that's not a bad thing. That he is in charge and he will do this, Paul says. I love this quote by Martin Luther. He says, well, I drink my little glass of Wittenberg beer, the gospel runs its course. That while I do it, it's all God. It's all Jesus. I can sit here and drink my little glass of beer and the gospel will run its course. That's an axiom. That's what we can count on. The last one 
is the horizontal dimension, inflame in one another love and good works. And I use the word inflame. Maybe your translation, if you're looking at a Bible, says provoke. But to me, provoke in our, in our conscious, in our, our, our culture, implies enrage or aggravate. That's not the idea at all. The, the idea is to inflame, to induce, uh, to um, impart, to fan the flames of love and good works. That's what we're here for. That's the horizontal aspect of this. Love and good works, not provoking. And he goes on to say, so therefore, let's see, sorry. Um, going, going, back, going back to the verse. Therefore, don't give up the habit of meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Don't give that up. That is an custom that we are supposed to practice. Now, I wanted to say a few things about this because that verse has been used a lot this last year yeah. in conflict with churches who are trying to, trying to figure out how to do this, how to work on this. First of all, the major clause here, the command here, is to inflame good works and love. That's what we're supposed to do. That's the command. That's the idea. How we do it is don't give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. And what I imagine that he's talking to here, he's talking to people who, who, are, who probably would just soon as well not show up because of the persecution. It's just a lot safer and a lot better if I just don't, don't show up. And he's saying, don't do that. Now, we have had to figure out new ways to do it. It's not so much as how you go about it, it's that you go about it. And whether we have the technology now to Zoom or in your families or in small groups or whatever, we can figure this out. There's nothing inherently sacred about 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings. Amen. The point is we do it. The point is that we find a way to do it. And if we wanted to be really New Testament-like, we would be doing it in homes anyway. So there's no way, set way to do it. It has changed through the cultures. It's changed through the centuries. Everybody does it differently. It's just that we do it somehow. Somehow we do it. By phone, by, by Zoom, in person, whatever, we do it. That every year when I was at Northwestern College, we would do a training uh, session a weekend before we sent our missionary interns out. And we sent them all over the world, usually by themselves, to India, Africa, um, Mexico, South America. We just sent them all over the world. And we would take them to Omaha, and we'd do, do these trainings every week. But Omaha was like this, this intensive training for a weekend. And one thing we did on Sunday mornings is that we then split them up. We sent some to a Greek Orthodox church. We sent some to a, a Spanish-speaking Catholic church, others to a Spanish-speaking Pentecostal church, some to an African-American uh, Baptist church. They were spread out all over, and they were all doing this. And they were all different, and yet they were all the same. They were all encouraging one another in love and good works. That's what we're called to do. That's the simple as it can get. As simple as it can get. We need each other. 
We need the love, the wisdom, and the feedback from each other. This word is an interplay here of mutuality. There is no hierarchy here. This is what we need from each other. Um, Gigi has turned me on to Stephen Freeman. And uh, he's a Greek Orthodox priest. And what I am struck with in this passage here is the ordinariness of the passage, just how ordinary this is, how mundane it is, that it isn't, you know, when I, we were going to Mexico, we were going to do great things for God, and I realized that in Mexico, Hood River, Iowa, wherever you are, it's really mundane, ordinary stuff. Just normal stuff. We're not relating to, uh, um, not relating to some saint to sinner, it's saint to saint. It's not therapist to patient, it's father to child, mother to daughter, friend to friend, worker to coworker. It is just mundane and ordinary. That's what it is. It's reaching out to that cold sister that you've been trying to touch for forever. It's reaching out to that dad who's neglecting his family but doesn't realize it. It's reaching out to that child who isn't able to make friends or, or that teenager who just won't talk to you. It's all of these things. This is what it is. Stephen Freeman says this. He says, uh, there is no ladder to climb in the Christian life. We want to do great things for God, extraordinary things for God. And in my experience, it is sufficient to simply practice mercy, kindness, generosity where you are. This sounds easy, but it is still more than a lot of people are willing to do. The true struggle is never found in doing what is extraordinary. It is just the very difficult matter of our life. The daily grind of remaining in place. That's where it happens. No ladder, that's where it happens. And the last phrase, looks like we will get through this. The last phrase is the day approaching. And we will do this in the day approaching. Now I'm going to go back. I'm going to save that for later. He says, we do all this thing even more so as the day approaches. What day? I take it to be the coming of Christ. The return of Jesus. We keep doing it all the more. Now, when I read this as a, as a teenager, when I read this as a youth, this was something I, I feared. That uh, God was coming back. It's like that bumper sticker you might have seen. You know, Jesus is coming back soon. Look busy. Well, that... <laughs> That's kind of the idea that I had, you know, that I got to get on it. You know, I got to get on it and get, be ready. And I used to be afraid that, that um, you know, God was going to, Jesus was going to come back while I was sitting in a movie theater or something. And it reminded me of when I was working in the restaurants and, um, and we always carried a rag. I think I may have shared this once before. We always carried a rag with us because the, 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 uh, the, 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 the saying, the, the mantra in the restaurant is if you got time to lean, you got time to clean. So you always carried a rag with you, and you see the manager coming, you're, you're, you're wiping down something, you know. And it's always there to do. And that's the way I felt like this was coming. You know, Jesus is coming back. You better be cleaning something, you know, working on something. But that's not it at all. It's Jesus, when Jesus talks about his coming, it's a banquet. It's a party. And you say, well, yeah, but he talks about uh, the, the catastrophe that's coming, you know, when, right before he comes to the cross. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem there. He says, no generation is not going to pass away. He needs to deserve more credit about prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem, I think. Yeah. 
But he's talking about this is something wonderful and great that we need to be looking forward to. Every summer, every summer, my, uh, my mom would start buying more groceries and she'd pull sheets out of, the, out of the closet and start washing them. And she'd start fixing meals and putting them in the freezers. And I, as a kid, you don't really pay much attention to it, but then you're making phone calls. You hear her making phone calls and you realize that your cousins are coming this week. We had family. My dad's family would come from Midland, San Antonio, and Harlingen. Harlingen takes it down to the border. And they would all come to Dallas because that's where my grandparents had retired. And I knew that they were coming. And as the day approached, we were so excited. It was nothing going to be fun. It was going to be, we were going to play football. My Uncle Earl had great stories about his, as a kid. And my Uncle Harper had great stories about fighting World War II. And my cousins, we had our cousins our age, and we played. It means we got to go to Six Flags. We only lived 30 minutes from Six Flags over Texas, but we never got to go until my cousins were there. And then we got to go with them. It was always going to be fun. And we looked at this as the day approached. It was just full of enthusiasm. That's what, we, that's what the author of Hebrews is telling us. As the day approaches, it's full of enthusiasm. Our identity is built on the grace of God and the work of God. And we form this character, this traits, these virtues, by drawing near, by hanging on to the hope, and then inflaming and fanning the flames of love and good works among us. It may look messy when you look around us. It may look terrible. But underneath all that messiness is love and goodness and good stuff. And he's, he's telling us to do that. This is what identifies us. This is what defines us. We are a forgiven people who worship, who hope, and who build one another up. And that's what I mean when we say we need to be excited and enthusiastic that God is, is creating virtue in us as the people of God. And if ever a time was needed, virtue was needed, this is it. Virtue and character of maintaining ourselves on the foundation of God. Finally, we get to this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer that he wrote when he was in prison to his infant son at his baptism. He says, when we may have to face events and changes that take no account of our wishes and our rights, but if so, we shall not give way to embittered and barren pride, but consciously submit to divine judgment and so prove ourselves worthy to survive by identifying ourselves generously and unselfishly with the life of the community and the suffering of our fellow man. Like I said at the beginning, the opinions go all over the place that these could be the seeds of the destruction of the church. Are we going to survive this? Are we going to survive the, the new patterns? Are we going to survive the pandemic? Is the church going to survive it? Or is it going to be seeds of revival? Well, we will survive. But are we going to be worthy of survival? And worthy of survival is unselfishly, generously and unselfishly in the life of the community and with the sufferings of our fellow man. That's what makes it worthy to survive. That we can show that this is who we are. This is what defines us. We are forgiven people who worship, who hope, who love. That's who we are. Father, thank you for this time. And we thank you for your word.
that challenges us, but also gives, brings great comfort. Father, we have no other words but to say thank you. Amen.